Well, it's official. For the first time since 2002, I've been working from home and have officially created a home office. The amount of disruption that each of us has experienced has been crazy. It will likely take the next decade to canonize how significant this year has been. But I think Match.com did it best with their recent ad campaign, A Match Made in Hell. This is one of their ads. The scene is set in a typical interview style. The couple is sitting on a lavish couch and an interviewer is off camera. The female voice that you hear is 2020. And the male voice, well, that's Satan. Here we go. Oh, I've dated much worse guys than him. Much worse. I mean, at least he's famous. I started by using the Match custom search filter. I filtered out joy, happiness, toilet paper, and reason. Boom. Most years I've dated are a little, I don't know, straightforward. I mean, there's a little misery, but nothing truly soul-crushing about them. I just want to be remembered, you know? Do you know the poem, The Road Less Traveled by Shakespeare? I actually have the tattoo of it. Don't ask me where. You devil. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> she gets me. That's the best part. When you meet someone that takes time to see beneath the surface. Of the earth. <laughs> it's just a perfect match. I discovered this campaign while scrolling through my LinkedIn feed. Kristen Luck had made a post reading absolutely brilliant ad from Match. Check it out if you need a laugh today or you're looking to laugh at how monumentally fucked 2020 has been in general. Now in the LinkedIn post, she didn't actually use the F word, but there you go. So I asked my friend, Miss Luck, to join me on today's show to talk about what we should look forward to in 2021. Now this is a different show format, just because many of you already know Kristen and her background. Before we get started, I do want to mention that Kristen and I have started a joint venture called The Consortium. This is around achieving your growth objectives. Achieving growth objectives is hard, especially in market research. We've put together a system that will help you unlock your full potential in 2021. If you'd like more information, drop me a note, jamin at happymr.com. So without further ado, let's listen to this candid conversation among longtime friends. I think that a lot of the reason that the industry has struggled to change over time and adopt a lot more modern, not only data collection technologies, but also how we incent and pay for data is because so much of the full service traditional revenue model is based on margin from data collection activities that they don't really conduct anymore. And right. so when you have an antiquated business model that hmm. is reliant hugely on that revenue, it's very, very tough to inspire people to change. So shifting gears from the incentive, like being the driver, do you think we move to a no incentive model where participants are just like, maybe altruistically? I mean, is that the model we're using now? <laughs> well, the problem with why, the model that we, we have now is the only way you really get any sort of return is if you're, and I don't mean this in an I mean, honestly, like if you're a fraudulent or a bad actor, then, you know, you can get, you can set up 50 mobile phones, right? Flip phones. And you can take the same survey until you brute force qualify 50 times or hundred times. And your net proceeds might be $20 by the time you kind of add up all your 
bogus users. That's a big part. I mean, fraud is a big part of the space. So maybe the part of the solution is not offering an incentive. Yeah, but then I question who's going to take a 25 minute survey with no incentive. And this is where we go. We go back in the loop. Uh, I know. You know you're the, doing a short survey. Yeah. Like the I, bot will. I always use Expedia as a really great example of a survey that I always fill out. You know, I use Expedia a lot when I'm booking travel. Yeah. When I check in a hotel, they literally send me, you know, one question email. It's got a happy face or a frowning face. And it's yeah. how was your check-in experience? That's it. I press one and I'm done. That to me is a survey that I'm always going to take. And no, is it realistic to have all surveys with one question? No, but I think that you could get a higher frequency of people taking surveys over and over and over again and not expecting an incentive if they were short. Even if it was five questions, I would answer it because totally. it doesn't user experience. And if I have a bad check-in experience or I've got a you know an issue, they'll reach right back out again. I mean, that was whole that I mean, this goes back 10 years when Google started the micro survey framework, right? right? Where you ask a hundred thousand people two questions and it looks like you had a thousand people take your survey. Right. Um, which is super powerful if it really works. But of course, market researchers, we just haven't been able to kind of turn that corner, I think largely because of the way that we analyze the data, which is at a per respondent level. So it doesn't feel right looking at the Frankenstein of, of a record. Right. But maybe that is part of it because I, you know, I have heard that there, I haven't seen it in action, but like Nielsen, Basies, and some others, they've been working on technology to, in essence, botify surveys. So they will synthesize their participants and through AI derive what the answer, right answers would be. They're leveraging like sophisticated technology that's been around for over a decade that's war simulation stuff. Right. Well, I mean, that's basically what we do in market research anyway. We take a, a relatively small sample size, 100 people, and we project onto the population. So what's the difference if you're doing data spreading and morphing you know, the survey together, which, as to your point, people have been really resistant to doing, but it is a means to an end, and it's not really any different than, to your point, what Google's trying to do. So There have been a lot of COVID-related research that's been done this year. Um, oh my God, please no more COVID <laughs> research. Everyone in their doctor has a COVID tracker. Yep. The COVID tracker, it's the new thing, right? Which is funny because I think you could actually like trace it back to those bathroom key, the airport bathroom kiosk surveys. Uh-huh. <laughs> I really Which think no that's like, ever touch again. no, because it's so gross. It was always been gross. That's like <laughs> the worst. That was always an elbow stamp, you know, and even more so now. I know. <laughs> it's, it's pretty funny. I do feel like you are seeing surveys more frequently and shorter in duration that are originating, at least I think, they're originating from the brands themselves, whether it's like your Expedia example. Right. Well, I would hope so. I was talking to a few other people in the brand space. Can't say the brands because I don't have their permission, but you know, big social media brands. And um, they're certainly seeing- Well, that leaves a whole lot out there to guess from. Well, there's at least three. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, they are doing a lot more actual research, but they are leveraging more in-house capabilities as opposed to uh, more of the partners that they used to use. Instead, what they're doing is they're leveraging partners more in a strategic way. So maybe less on the operational side and more on the, you know, they don't have an expert in one type of, you know, whether it's methodology or subject matter expert. So they're leveraging that level of expertise. Is that something you're seeing? 
to be honest, I'm not doing a whole lot of work with big brands at this point. I mean, I work a lot with early stage companies, so no, but that's not to say it's not happening. I just, I'm just not seeing it personally. You're hearing a lot of noise about the return of in-person. For sure. And it's, it's interesting because one of the last conferences that I spoke at was QRCA and it was about, you know, basically the rise of the humans. Right. Which I, I think is big. I mean, I think that we've depersonalized research so much that the personalization component of qualitative and that active listening and really getting back to that sort of face-to-face method, whether that's online or offline and hopefully online at this point, because most people don't want to be talking online. I mean, face-to-face. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I still really believe in that. I think in a lot of ways, And I'm sure a lot of people in the qualitative sector would disagree with me that 2020 has been a great year for qualitative, but I think it has been because it's forced us to really pivot to technology solutions that a lot of people were resistant for, for so, so many years. And because of that, qualitative has has developed this reputation as being slow to innovate, slow to change, Mm -hmm. super, super traditional, slow, and I think that this pivot to a lot of online is super, super positive for qualitative. Now, if you're a focus group facility owner, maybe it hasn't been the best year, but I I, I do think that that forced pivot and people being accepting of technologies that they were not accepting of a year ago is super powerful. Thinking about the early stage companies, not that you need to like be name dropping them exactly, but what is the need if you can disclose that or, you know, where is the opportunity existing because I'm hearing a lot of new entrants in 2020 into the space. Early stage companies in terms of market yeah. research. Market firms. research, yep. Yeah, I think there's a huge focus on data visualization and reporting. If I had to put money into a company, that's where I put it right now because I think in many ways, not that data collection is commoditized, but it's one piece of the this more holistic picture of what's going on in a company or a brand. And so being able to bring in external data sources and have them work really seamlessly with research data is super, super important. I mean, I've probably been saying this for four or five years now. This is why I always tell people like, my predictions are really not that accurate because I'll make them and then I have to make the same ones for like 10 years before. <laughs> or 20 of you shorter surveys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is gonna be the year of shorter surveys. Mm. No, um, no. no, it's just, no. yeah. I mean, you remember when we were still running Decipher, it was always the year of mobile. It's the year oh. of mobile. It's still not the year of mobile, by the way. Right, which is yeah. insane. I'm not exaggerating. Last week, I tried to take a survey and I couldn't because yeah. <laughs> I was on my mobile device. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Really? The best one that I received is I, I used mobile banking on my phone and my bank sent me an email to have me take a survey about my mobile banking experience and the survey was not mobile compatible. Yeah. I mean, what the actual F? <laughs> The good news is it's not a kid's program, so we can say the word. Right. We can't fuck. <laughs> we can say it. Fuck. Crap. But that's frustrating, and it's not frustrating. <laughs> and I actually contacted the full-service research firm that did it and said, because I, I knew who the firm was, obviously. <laughs> oh, guys. And they must have like, hated yeah. that. Embarrassing. Oh, they, didn't, they were not appreciative at first. No, not appreciative to get that feedback. Yeah. That is funny. Just Nobody don't pass it on. Nobody emails from me after I take in their surveys. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's a high bar too. Actually, it's not a high bar. You just want it to work on the 
devices. I mean, what is mobile utilization right now versus desktop? I think it's 65%. Oh, uh, no, it's higher than that. I think it's like- Is 80%. it really? Is it? Yeah. So, I mean- <laughs> It's very high. Yeah, yeah, really high. And it also depends on which markets you're doing research in. I mean, if you're doing research throughout Asia, Africa, right? you know, pretty much anywhere besides the US, it better be mobile compatible. We're like 20 years behind over here on mobile technology. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. absolutely true. So when you think about the challenges that companies are going to face in market research, maybe even broader from your vantage point, yeah. what are you seeing as some of the key challenges? Well, one of the key challenges is differentiation. And I think that 2020 has been a really good wake-up call for a lot of companies, which is how do you take your business from a nice to have to a need to have? Because I think many businesses realized in the thick of this pandemic that what they were offering was a nice to have and not a need to have. This is one of the key things that I talk to companies about that I advise is that nobody wants to be a nice to have product. Mm -mm. You want to be so deeply entrenched that clients cannot live without what you're providing. And so if what you have is sort of a ho-hum product, it's going to be the first thing to get cut. So I think that's one thing. I also, I'm hopeful, and again, I've been saying this hopeful. for years now, whether or not it'll happen, I don't know. I think that a lot of people are going hand in hand with this, this idea of being truly differentiated are also realizing that they have completely underinvested in marketing mm. and marketing is one way of really differentiating yourself in the marketplace and communicating your message. And as you know, when companies are experiencing a downturn, the very first thing that they cut is marketing expense. Mm -hmm. And that's fine if you're going to cut marketing expense, but then you need to replace it with activity. And it's hard to replace it with activity if you've had really no activity today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if you're just doing paid, you know, if you're just doing paid programs, conferences, sponsorships and you know you know the companies that are at every mm -hmm. single event exhibiting and do no other marketing those companies really took a hit and it's very tough to pivot suddenly to content marketing because content marketing is a long game mm -hmm. so i'm hopeful that this last year was a wake-up call and certainly from the number of emails that i'm getting in my inbox on a day-to-day -day basis i would say that it has been a wake-up call for a lot of folks it's so interesting that there's been such hesitancy of digitizing, like really getting your hands dirty and understanding the digital connection that we can make. And I don't know if that's just because we were complacent at an executive level. I mean, part of that is the case, honestly. It's like, okay, sure. you know, we're just, this has worked. We're just going to keep beating this drum until it dies, uh, almost functionally like a cash cow. And subsequently, you have different major events in the industry, but nobody really understood what the ROI is on the events. They just saw it as they had more business cards at right at the end of the right day. well right. and this is the problem with having a disconnect and you and i have talked a lot about this lately there's this is the problem with having the disconnect between sales and marketing which is when you don't have a really entwined sales and marketing program then what ends up happening is you have marketing book these events book the booth get the tchotchkes there get all the materials right. there and then you have a bunch of salespeople who think every event was an amazing event and they got 20 or 30 business cards and awesome. That was great. And now on to the next event with no thought about, did any of that actually convert? Are mm -hmm. you seeing the same 300 people that you just saw a month ago? And what are your chances of converting those same 300 people if you've already tried to convert before? I think mm -hmm. that events are great for sh short game tactics. And I think when you're running a robust marketing plan where you really understand what drives revenue, which is not just feet on the street, 
it's also that nurturing and how are you building those relationships over time, not just for new clients coming in, but also for existing clients. So you've got to have both types of activities. You've got to have short game activities, which would be things like webinars and events and things where you're getting immediately connected to people and then longer game, which is more content marketing, social media. And the truth of the matter is that people give up way too early on the content side of things. And you know how it is. Like we're similar people, you know, if you make a post and you don't get that much engagement on it, you're like, mm, womp, womp. like nobody likes me and pack up my toys and go home. You know, <laughs> that's not how it works. It takes years and years and years to build up credibility and to, and to develop really interesting content. You know, if I, if I look at the firms that I love reading content from, like Kelton, I love their newsletter. I love reading their stuff. Paris Pohl. Oh my God. Like John Garzima, he's a content machine. You know, he really sticks with it. He's like a dollar on a bone. He's issuing stuff every day. <laughs> so I think there's great examples in our industry of people who really done it well and are doing it well. But for the most part, what's ironic about market research is that we neither believe in marketing or research, researching our own brand. Uh, we don't want to spend a dime on it. It's true. And that, so there's two things that stand out to me. One is that you're right. Events have been treated historically like this, like short-term micro sort of sprint. But the yeah. way that you win with them is the pre-work that's done two to three weeks ahead of time. And then the post-work that's done two to three weeks afterwards, right? With the subsequent follow-up. Right. And then the actual data on the back end that says, you know, what was the true ROI. And it's funny too, because if you actually look at the man hours involved in a, attending an event, it's very high and the cost is very, very high, high, right? So very like, high. why not take 15% more on your budget and add it to the beginning and end? And then the other thing I wanted to mention to respond to about like the content, one of the things that I found is people are a lot more interested in what they're saying than what I'm saying. And so like the, the biggest That's hack, nature, Jamin. I know. So I think there you go. What did you just and, say? <laughs> thank you. And which is every audiologist's favorite joke. Yeah. The way that I really found attention purchase or like the way that I could start gaining fans, if you want to think of it that way, was by responding to other people's stuff. Right. Yeah. So like really, and not just like happy birthday or congratulations on the promotion, but I mean, like actually take the time to click on their LinkedIn article, digest the content, read find it. something useful about it, read it, and then repost on the comments, something that's like smart. Right. Like, yeah, that's not that's, a great article. Yeah, exactly. Not just great article or thumbs up, happy face emoji. I think the challenge for many people is that they feel insecure about posting an opinion about something. They're afraid of getting negative feedback or having somebody disagree with them or getting into a constructive debate online or worst case, which is what LinkedIn sort of transitioned to during the election period is getting attacked. Mm. You know, tempers were and emotions were high, high on LinkedIn post-election. And I've never received so many nasty comments to things that I posted, which were not even political in nature. Yeah, you had the halo so, effect. So the halo effect. Yeah, I think people mm -hmm. are just really worked up, obviously, for people in the U.S. But I had a lot of friends from overseas, obviously, that are on LinkedIn that were sort of like, what the hell's going on over there? <laughs> you know, like, has everyone's gone crazy all of a sudden? Yes, we have yeah. gone crazy. Yes. Yes, we have. And I also think, and I talk a lot about this when I talk to people about personal branding, there are a lot of folks that feel like if they don't have a strong personal brand already, that they don't have a right to comment. 
that their opinion doesn't matter and they don't have a right to comment. Everyone has a right to comment and express an opinion. Mm -hmm. And that's how you build a personal brand. Yeah, totally right. And what's interesting to me is if somebody comments on one of my posts, I diligently check it at least daily to make sure that I'm at least yeah. liking at a minimum. If not, you know, if it's, if it's great article, I'm probably going to give it a thumbs up, but if it's actually something meaningful then, and I appreciate the great articles, don't get me wrong. It, may, it still makes me happier than right. nothing, but I want to be able to take that conversation to the, cause it, every post is just like a thing that exists to have a conversation. It's like fodder yeah. for a reason why to talk. Right. I gauge my feedback in that way. Just like everybody does. Right. For sure. Well, and it also helps elevate your post and mm-hmm. allows more people to see it and thus more people to comment on it so that co- conversation can continue. I will say though, one of the saddest moments of my social posting life was on LinkedIn when I posted just sort of a gushing review about my suitcase. And that damn suitcase post got more likes than anything I have ever posted. A yeah. suitcase. Yeah. But- I also five or six people went and bought that suitcase and they still emailed me that to this day to tell me how much they love that suitcase and two of them are clients. So funny. That weren't before. So (laughs) I was having this conversation. My nephew is a nationally ranked motocross rider. Uh, So he's been doing, you know, motocross forever. Like grew up. He's trying to figure out social media because he realizes that he is not going to be able to do motocross much longer. Right. Um, And he does have some fans, but. And so he's talking to me about what do people care about? Like, what kind of things should I be posting about? Because right now it's all just about big jumps. Right. And you're going to run stuff, out of content really quick with big jumps. Right. Yeah, totally. And, and that's kind of the point. Like the stuff that people care about is you and they care about the craft. So like for him having a tip of the day, or maybe it's ancillary, like, does he drink coffee and why, why not? You know, <laughs> like hey, what, what are the I- tips? One of my favorite Instagram accounts that I follow is a guy and it's called Alfred drinking coffee. And it's literally him in a different, slightly different colored shirt every day with the same background. And it's like a rainbow pattern. Like if you look at his whole Instagram and it's just him drinking a different cup of coffee every day. Totally then he, that out. But then he talks about the coffee and why he likes it. And it's, right. it's almost like he's doing a wine tasting, but mm-hmm. it's hilarious. He doesn't smile. It's literally just him <laughs> with the coffee. And it's completely pointless, but I mean, like, let's see how many followers Alfred has right now. Alfred drinking, he's based in Canada. Alfred drinking coffee, everyone, look him up. Alfred drinking coffee has almost 12,000 followers. It's pretty good. That's a lot more than I have. Yeah, me too. Oh my God, he's got one more. Nobody. Let's go, Alfred. (laughs) Uh, Take this guy viral. Well, and that's That's what I think, you know, I mean, I think part of a content strategy (laughs) is figuring out what your personal brand is, what content you want to talk about and what you want to be known for. And you stay true to that. What is the role of personal brand and big brand, right? So thinking about like a, if you're Ipsos, for example. Mm -hmm. You mean, how does a personal brand relate to the big brand or? Yeah, exactly right. So like if you're the CMO of Ipsos, how do you think about personal brand either informing or being created out of the bigger brand? Right. Well, I mean, I think the more that you have employees or C-suite executives that are out talking and evangelizing the brand, the better. I do think that there is a fine line between having a strong personal brand within a corporate environment and having that brand overtake the company. And there's a couple of examples, like the CEO of T-Mobile, for instance. Mm-hmm. Very, very, you know, I can't remember, John Lagarde, I think is his name, but he's awesome. Mm-hmm. 
but you know, if he ever left T-Mobile, I mean, T-Mobile was sort of a brand, but it wouldn't be the same brand without him. I think we went through a little bit of that at Decipher and I kind of mm-hmm. used the Decipher example when I'm talking to clients, which is that you don't want your personal brand to overshadow the corporate brand. Your personal brand should be helping lift it. Right. And you should be affiliated, obviously, like with that brand. I mean, I spent years going out and evangelizing the Decipher brand. And then all of a sudden I wasn't at Decipher anymore once we sold. And so it was not only re- reimagining my own personal brand, but I think challenging for the new buyers in some ways too, because mm-hmm. I was never, I was not associated, but to this day, people will still call and email me and ask me to help negotiate their software licensing deal. <laughs> yeah, it is funny, huh? Yeah, but I, I, do, I also think that there are some people that think because they're introverted that they can't develop a personal brand. They can't express themselves within the context of a corporate environment. And I, I disagree with that too, because I think there's lots of ways of building a personal brand and not all of it is through public speaking or having really strong opinions about things. There's, there's lots of ways that you can build a personal brand as an introvert. Totally. And staying inside of your comfort zone, which is usually subjects. I think the problem is there's this saying, you know, comparison is the thief of joy, but I also think it's the thief of content too, because Hmm. people spend a lot of time looking at what other people post and think like, oh, well, I want to be like that, or I want to write like that, or yeah, but that's not who you are as a person and it's not your personal brand. So you got to stay true to your own comfort zone and what you feel comfortable talking about and what you're passionate about. That's the big thing. I think a lot of people force themselves to talk about things maybe that they're not that excited about. Yeah, I remember Jamie and I used to always dread cocktail. Like for me at a conference, a cocktail hour was the worst hour. That was hell, hell. Well, remember we talked about this. That was my favorite hour. I know. I want to die. So the, but if you want to sit down and talk about like column binary data sets and, you know, oh. ways to automate your systems from X to Y, I will have that conversation over drinks forever. Right. Couldn't yeah, be happier. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to bust you on this cocktail party thing a little bit, because I remember one of the first conferences that you and Jamie and Jamie, well, the three of us went together you guys kind of came down at some point during cocktail hour. And I remember you had a big pillow crease on your cheek. Nap. I just finished the thing. I'm like, right I'm going to do a little power nap. Uh, You're not working for an hour and Jamie's been taking a nap. Yeah. yeah. But I think that that, but I think, and I think this goes to the you know power of small companies and executive teams is figure out what you're each good at and mm-hmm. maximize that. You know, I think we figured out really early on what each of our strengths were. And then we had consensus around those strengths and we didn't bother each other when it came to those strengths. Like you guys aren't going to follow me around a cocktail party, nor do you even want to be at that cocktail party. And guess what? You don't need to, because I will literally talk to everyone there. And I think that the interpersonal dynamics is one of the things that I'm most proud of with, with Decipher. I get Christmas messages and send Christmas messages to people that used to work for us over a decade ago. And there is this cultural strength or bond that you intentionally create as an executive inside of the business. And it is about the people for the people or however you want to think about that, but, or frame it. But the thing that I think is really powerful that can come out of that is you actually can become a barrier to your growth because you start doing the same thing 
right? Because that's sort of the, becomes like this cultural norm. And so doing things, getting back to our example of not having the pre-work and the post-work of a conference, just because that's how we originally did it. If it was really hard for us, I remember it was very hard for us to just get business cards into the CRM so that the marketing team could do the drip right. campaign subsequently, right? Because right. there was already like this cultural norm that had been established around it. Right. Well, and there's great ways of automating that process now, but I think going back to what you originally said about having that whole process mapped out, you should never be going into a conference without having to understand of what the whole plan is post-conference and yeah. even already having that content, those email blasts, that nurturing campaign, all that set up right? so that everyone is clear on what their role is around that event. And it's all automated. As soon as the event begins, that whole sales process begins at the same time. So there's no, it's not like people are coming home and from that and then having to regroup and figure out right, what and figure it no, all it's out. already defined. Really my point though was, and I didn't do a good job articulating it, was like you create an artifact. I remember before you joined, right? But it was just Jamie and I and, and Ervin. We had a capped growth rate, okay? Mm -hmm. And that was because it was our norm because that was just the culture of the business, not negative. Right. It was a good, not a bad growth rate, right? Uh, mid double digits. But when you joined the team, all of a sudden it like, you know, moved on. In fact, I think that was 2007 and I might have the year wrong, but, or maybe six. And then 2007 and then 2008 and nine was a catastrophic year in a lot of ways for the industry. But because we had adjusted the cultural norm, we actually grew by 156% in 2009. Yeah. So the tension there and a good tension, healthy tension was that we recognize kind of, this is our cultural DNA, but we want it to change. In order for us to enact that change, we've got to have change agent inside of the executive team to help facilitate that transition. Yeah. I talk a lot about this with founders, which is, I think you have to decide whether you want to be a growth company or not. Right. There's nothing, you know, and a lot of people talk about the difference between lifestyle and growth companies. I don't even know if you need to call it a lifestyle company. I call them, I call right. them more like Phoenix companies, you know, like they rise slowly and then they run for many, many years. But I also think that a lot of folks, they get caught up in this idea like, oh, the, the company isn't growing, it's failing. No, you have to make a conscious decision about how you're going to grow. And I do use Decipher as an example a lot when I'm working with clients, which is that because we were running a growth company, none of us were taking home a million dollars a year. We were taking right. pretty, pretty small salaries for what mm -hmm. the amount of work that we were doing mm -hmm. because we knew we were going to make all of our money during the sale. And that's the investment. Mm -hmm. We're taking all that money and we're investing it back into the company, investing it back in, investing it back in. And that's the difference between a growth business, which is, hey, I'm going to reinvest all of the money that I put into it for growth versus, you know, more of a lifestyle or long-term company where, yeah, maybe you're fine with growing 10% or less a year but that wasn't what our goal was. That wasn't the objective. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's why having your objectives and the key results are so important to map out so that everyone's pulling for the same thing. So we have launched the consortium moving into 2021. Yeah. I'm yeah. super excited about it. So it's basically yeah. like revenue strategy and executive mentorship and a cohort structure around six complementary businesses. It's quarterly, uh, correct me or whatever, maybe make it better, but it's a quarterly curriculum. So our first quarter is, as you already have pointed out, is all around that growth IQ. So establishing what your goals are and mapping the specific things around it. Then we move into looking at the actual revenue stack. So like running into marketing, really making sure there's a strong synergy, like there's a hand in glove relationship with, with revenue and marketing. 
Well, t- um, technically, a chief revenue officer should be skilled at both sales and marketing. It's, totally. It's, you know, if you look at any other industry, that's how it runs. In market research, for whatever reason, chief revenue officers are salespeople. Yeah. And that's it. And there's a, I, there's yeah. a great disregard for marketing, yeah. which is really a shame because marketing's whole job is to make sales easier. It's, it's all about lead generation. And then, you know, the third quarter we're focused on what's your customer love strategy. One of my key learnings out of Decipher and Focus Vision is that about 80% of your growth on a healthy company is going to come from existing customers. So, you know, it's really important to drive that 20% because that adds to the existing customer base the following year. You need to have an active strategy on how you're going to expand. Um, The last one is around changing your growth by changing your behavior. So kind of getting unstuck on those artificial ceilings that have been placed in the business, just because that's the way it's been happening and it's comfortable. And it's sort of like that regression point or that like that norm level. Yeah. I think a lot of lack of growth can be caused by behaviors that you might not even know exist. I mean, one of the first exercises that I do with a lot of firms that I advise is I come in and, you know, I ask about their attrition rates or their year over year growth rates by client. And I would say that 99% of the time I hear like, oh, we don't have any attrition rates. We don't, I mean, like <laughs> attrition's not a problem. All of our, our clients love us. I hear this all the time. Well, I look at the numbers and I can tell you, your clients do not love you. Mm. Hard to look in the mirror. You, but 40% are churning. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think one of the points I'm trying to clarify for folks is that we were kicking off in February and there's a couple of reasons for doing that. One is that January is a... It, you know, usually a big month for entrepreneurs and C-suite execs, which is who it's designed for. So we're kicking mm-hmm. off in February. And then it also allows us to carry through Q4 to do all the strategic planning for 2022. So right. that's that's why we're running it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Some people are like, oh, well, it's not really on a quarter. No, it is. It's just not the quarter that starts in January. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Three projections for 2021. Yeah, three projections, which I ho- hope will come true. More qual for sure, although more tech-based. I really do believe, you know, and I gave a talk about this at QRCA, about the rise of the humans, 100%. Mm-hmm. I think we've got to pivot back to that. And two is that I think marketing research companies might actually start investing in both marketing and research mm-hmm. on their own brands. I think it's super important. And I think that this last year for a lot of folks has been very, very telling and a real eye-opener in terms mm-hmm. of how they need to manage their business moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. And then third prediction. Gosh, you know, my predictions, like I said, I've been saying some of the same predictions forever, but I I am hopeful that because of COVID that we've become more open to new technologies and new ways of doing things, particularly on the qual side of the business and that embrace of technology will continue and not revert. I'm with you hundred percent. My three are, I think that we figure out how to connect more at a human level, because really, as you said, you know, marketing is all about driving a relationship. And I believe that we're moving away from sort of the static terms of trade and more to a, a human connection, you know, which is interesting. For sure. Yeah. And then I, I think you're going to see an increase in brand side panels or custom communities or however you want to think about it. Like, oh, for sure. For right? sure. Yeah. Well, because they're, they're higher quality, mm-hmm. they can get responses more easily. And I also think that there's a greater level of respect for those panels because those are their actual consumers. Totally. 100%. You want to treat those people like gold because they're they're your personal brand evangelists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. And then I think that you're going to see an improvement to data quality through unknown or new recruiting methods. I really think you're going to see, and a byproduct of that is going to probably be increased CPIs. So the cost per interview is going to increase, but brands are going to be willing to pay it. 
because of the quality delta. I mean, I hope Procter so. and Gamble uh, saying thirty to forty percent of participants are fraudulent. I mean, that's <laughs> oh, for sure. And that, I, I think do, that's low. To be honest, yeah. I think that's low. I, I think, unfortunately, sampling costs are on a race to the bottom, right. and that is what is driving the quality issues. And we need to get out of that headset. Like that is a dangerous mentality to be in, where it's so commoditized that we're not valuing response. You can tell we don't value them because we give them really shitty long 25 minute surveys. You know, where we're asking them the same question over and over and over and over and over again. Would you have your mom take it? I think that should be the rubric for <laughs> participant experience. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I had someone ask me to provide a testimonial for why people should be doing traditional qual again. And I, that it's funny because I used that as my rubric and I said, well, I, I can't recommend that right now because I wouldn't want my mother to go to a face-to-face <laughs> right. interview right now. I just wouldn't, right. I wouldn't advise it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But hopefully, right. you know, hopefully that changes in 2021. Thanks all for listening today. Really appreciate your time and attention. I hope that you and yours have a fantastic and safe 2021. Please, 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 if you found any value, take time, screen capture, share this on social media. If you tag myself or Happy Market Research Podcast, I will send you a free t-shirt. Have a good rest of your day.